0: Thank you, Rachel. We are, you know, as Mark said, uh, if you get your Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be there here in just a moment. But, you know, as Mark said when he was up here uh, sharing his announcement, uh, we we live in a world that's filled with lost people, right? So so we, uh, maybe, maybe not everybody here, but but I and those that are members of this church, we've committed ourselves to spending our lives worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what we want to do, but there's a lot of people living all around us that don't worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's true for us today, and it was true for those to whom Peter was writing in 62 A.D., in, he was writing to elect exiles who were living in Asia Minor. There's a small, small groupings of Christians living amongst a whole culture, many of whom did not worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. So Peter's writing to them, and they knew what it was like. And we know from what Peter writes as well as other writers in Scripture that our desire, hopefully, and God's desire, is that those who don't right now worship Jesus as Lord and Savior... God's desire and our desire is that those people would repent of their sin, trust in Jesus, and spend their lives worshiping Jesus as God. Right? That's what we want. That's what God wants. And so the question is, well, how? How's that going to happen? How do those that are currently unbelievers come to faith in Christ? Now, there's a lot of different answers we could give to that. Certainly, it's going to require us who believe to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. right? That that it's going to require words. People need to hear the message that there is a God who made all things and He is holy and He deserves all of our worship. And they need to hear the message that we are sinful, that we don't just occasionally make mistakes, we are at the core diseased by sin. We're headed on a path that will lead in the end to destruction, and we need to be rescued. And God has provided us a rescuer, and His name is Jesus. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He took our punishment so that all who trust in Jesus will be saved and live forever with Him, worshiping Him forever. But all who do not repent and turn to Jesus will be headed and continue to head towards eternal destruction, and that's the message that we need to proclaim with our lips, but Peter's been focusing recently in this letter on the kind of life that we ought to be living. So there's a message that we ought to be sharing, and that needs to be coupled with a life that we ought to be living. We should not be the kind of people that proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our lips, but live in a way that totally... Opposes that that comes out of our lips nor should we be the kind of people that just live a certain kind of way But never speak a message we need to be doing both But the focus in this point in peter is the kind of life that we're supposed to live And so he's kind of applied this message to different contexts if you want to just look really quickly We spent a few weeks ago We just spent the whole time on verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 Where he said beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles To abstain from the passions. You're people that are out of place. Here's what you're supposed to do. You're you're believers, but you're out of place. You feel out of place in the world that you live in. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You want to sin. That's what you want to do. Don't do it, he says. And then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the unbelievers honorable. So that even though they may speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's kind of the the theme that set up every example that he's had in the the passages since then. Our goal is that people who are now unbelievers would come to worship Jesus. How are they going to do that? And then he kind of lays that out in each of these passages. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 13 to 17, and the message was this. Listen, I know there's a lot of people out there that you believe to be ignorant and foolish. And so how do you deal with ignorant and foolish people? Do you got, buy one of those t-shirts that says, I'm with idiots, and has arrows pointed both ways, and just proclaim to them, hey, listen, you're ignorant and foolish. Is that the way that we do it? No. The message was, he said, submit to governing authorities. You've got people in authority over you, submit yourself to them, and work to do good in the community in which you live. Okay, so so, so that's the first way in which we try and live the kind of life that makes Jesus attractive to unbelievers. Secondly, last week, he addressed slaves, household servants. It was their job and their identity in life to to work for masters. Some masters were good and gentle. Some masters were cruel and unjust, and so many slaves endured unjust suffering, and Peter said, right now it's not looking like you can get out of that, and so here's what you do. In the midst of you enduring unjust suffering, you can follow Jesus' example and point other people to Jesus, the one who died for your sins. He suffered unjustly, you suffer unjustly, just as he did in order to point them to Jesus. And then, this week, he's getting even closer to home. Now he's talking about what happens within our households. He's talking about what happens within a marriage relationship. So he's getting very close to home. question specifically is this. How should one spouse who has been born again, they've trusted in Jesus, they worship Jesus as Lord and Savior, how does that one spouse live in such a way in their marriage that their unbelieving spouse would turn from their sin and worship Jesus? A couple of assumptions we need to know that Peter's making about marriage because we have to define that in our culture. As Peter talks about marriage, he's talking about a lifelong union Of one man and one woman. That's how the Bible defines it. God's the one who created marriage, so he gets to define it, right? And so he's defined marriage as a lifelong union of a man and a woman. And so that's Peter's assumption as he's coming at this passage to talk about marriage a bit here today. So, big idea for today is this. God uses submissive Christian wives who pursue inner beauty to lead their unbelieving husbands to Jesus. And God answers the prayer of husbands who seek to understand and honor their wives. Okay, so that's the big idea today. Uh, Just so you know, as I start to read this passage, as I told the elders this morning, I feel so ill-equipped, undeserving, not confident as I share this message with you this morning. Because first six verses of this message are an address to wives, And then the last one is an address to husbands, commanding husbands to do things that I don't always do very well. And so I feel very ill-equipped, but I also, I don't have confidence in me. I don't have confidence like, hey, listen to me, because I'm the 35-year-old who's got this all figured out, right? That's not why you ought to listen to me this morning. You ought to listen, because I'm just trying. I've been praying that God would make clear what His Word says. We know that God's Word, every scripture is breathed out by God, and it's useful. And so, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture that's a little tough. A little tough to figure out how it applies in our day. A little tough to figure out how it means, what it means in our lives. But it's God's Word, and He can do a powerful work through it. And so, if you're able to, would you stand as we read God's Word this morning? First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise... Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, without a word, by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart In an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write these words in this letter. To Christians living in Asia Minor almost 2,000 years ago. And thank you that that same spirit that inspired Peter to write these words, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit lives in me because I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, Believes, and that same spirit lives in many who are here, and that same spirit can be at work in all who are here by convicting us of sin. Help us not to hear Scripture through our own lenses and experiences, but help us to interpret our own experiences through the lens of Scripture as we open it up and, and look at it and dig in and try and figure out what you're saying here in this passage here this morning. Change our hearts, change our minds, make them more molded to your own. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, so let's dive right in. Remember, in context, I already mentioned what this is doing. He's just addressing this same point. We've got unbelievers and believers. Believers want unbelievers to know Jesus. They can live in such a way that leads people to that. And so, verse 1, he talks about attractive submission in the home. What is the situation? Well, the situation is there is a wife who is born again, right? That's who Peter's writing to. He's writing to people who he called in chapter 1, those who are born again. People that have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus, now they worship Jesus, and in this case, the wife has done so, and the husband has not. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. Okay, so we've got a husband who's not a believer, a wife who is. That's a tough situation. It's a tough situation in our day, probably a tougher situation for those living in Peter's day. Because the expectation in that culture is that the wife would just go along with whatever the husband did. So if the husband did something, the wife just kind of was expected to follow. But here, what's happened, it seems, is that wives have, after being married, become Christians. They've turned to Jesus, and they now worship Him, And and their husbands have not done the same thing. And so this is a tough situation in that day. But it's a tough situation in our day, too. Some of you may be living in that situation, or at least know women living in that situation. It's hard when there's a woman whose life and identity are tied up in worshiping Jesus to be married. When when the one that she loves the most here on earth does not share that same first love with her. That's a hard way to live. Some of you have lived there, some of you are living there, some of you know people that are living there now. It's hard because it's hard for a woman to try and step up and be the spiritual leader in their home, for their kids if they have any. It's hard for for those women who come maybe maybe come to a worship service alone. Everybody knows they're married, but they're coming to a worship service alone, and they feel like whether it's true or not, they feel like everybody's just looking at them and wondering where their husband's at. Or maybe maybe their husband comes with them and sits there dutifully but he doesn't believe a thing that's happening, and he comes home, she knows that instead of her being able to celebrate with him what she just heard, what she just sung, that she's going to get from him sarcastic, critical, snide comments. And it's hard. It's a hard situation when you have a, a one spouse who believes and another who does not. That's the situation here. And the goal for the Christian woman who has a husband who does not believe in Jesus is for that husband to be won over to Jesus. You see that there in verse 1. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won. W-O-N. They may be won. That right now, they're, they're not in Christ. They may be won over to Christ. That's the goal. It might seem like there'd be easier ways of dealing with this. Remember, this is probably women because of the time frame who, when they were married, they weren't Christians either, right? But after they got married, they were converted. They were born again. They became believers while they were married. And Peter's message to them is, it's good to have a Christian husband, so divorce the one you have and go find you a better Christian one. That's not the message. Because remember, the assumption Peter's running with is that God has created marriage to be a lifelong union between a man and a woman, right? Right? And so the message is not get away. And by the way, the message, if you're a single person, don't put yourself in this situation. You're a single person and you're a believer. You trust Jesus. Don't, Don't even date or get into a relationship with and look forward to marriage to somebody that's not a believer. It's a tough situation to put yourself in. But here, Peter's addressing women who are already in that situation. And so if her goal is to win her husband over to Jesus, the question is how? How is she going to do that? How is a believing wife supposed to win, see her husband won over to Jesus? And notice it says, by doing so without a word by the conduct of their wives. That means that a believing wife does not get her husband to believe by nagging him and telling him to step up and be a spiritual leader. Because you know what? If he's not a Christian, he doesn't know what that even means. He's not going to be a good spiritual leader if he's not a Christian. So nagging him and telling him that he ought to do that is not going to be helpful. An unbelieving wife does not get her husband won over to Jesus by dragging him with her. Maybe it works, God can do anything, but by dragging him with her to a worship service, where he just sits there and he hates every moment of it. Your goal is not to get your husband, who doesn't believe in Jesus, to sit next to you at a worship service. Your goal is to get your husband, who doesn't believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. Right? Women don't do this. Wives, you you don't do this by, by telling your unbelieving husband how jealous you are of some of the other families in church who seem to have it much more together than your own family. It's not going to be helpful. By insisting that he only listens to Christian radio when you're in the car with him, that's probably not going to win him over to Christ. It's not, it's not any of those things. How does, he, how does a wife who has an unbelieving husband do it? Well, here it says, there's a command in verse 1. Here's the command. Likewise, wives, be subject to or submit to your own husbands. Submit to your own husbands. Remember, And in context here, Peter's always addressing the ones who are supposed to submit. He addresses everybody. You're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. And these are exiles living in the Roman Empire. They didn't vote these people into office. They don't agree with them. But he doesn't tell them, pack your suitcases and go back somewhere else. He says, stay there, live there, and submit to the government. Right? And then, and then he's talking to slaves, and he knows that he's not going to be able to in his lifetime overthrow the whole institution of slavery in the Roman Empire, as bad as it is. So he doesn't address that. He just talks to the slaves, and he says, figure out how to live the kind of life in that context that leads your unbelieving masters to Jesus. And now he's speaking to wives. He's saying, submit yourself to your husbands so that you might By doing so, by the way that you live your life, by your conduct, that you might lead them to Jesus. Now, what does it look like to submit? As he did in the other passages, he's going to elaborate on it in the next few verses. So you see the next point is this. Next point is this, how to be beautiful and attractive. Now, let's say I just put that on, on a poster. A blank poster and the top of the poster says, how to be beautiful and attractive. And we put that poster up at like the Dale Howard Family Activity Center. Or we put that poster up at the middle school while school was still in session. And we just put a marker next to it. We said, here, everybody go ahead and fill in the blank. How to be beautiful and attractive. And people just started writing their own answers on that. I think it might be a little bit scary to hear what people would write. How to be beautiful and attractive. Because our culture has a pretty messed up idea of what it means to be Beautiful and attractive, right? I actually, I was, I was trying to, trying to do some cultural study, but it's weird to do it. So, so this week I was at High uh, V, and uh, and I wanted to because I knew I was preaching about this. I was like, what is the message that women in our culture get? Because women in our culture feel a pressure to be beautiful and attractive, and so who's telling them how to do that? And if you judge by magazine covers while you're waiting in the checkout line, women are getting some really, really bad advice on how to be beautiful and attractive, right? And, that, and and so I'm trying. So I'm standing in line behind two dudes, right? And so it's the two of them, and they're and they're they're looking at me, and and I like I wanted to study the 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 magazine, so I like so I'm trying to like sort of glance like like I wasn't really looking, but I but I was, you know. So I'm trying to look and. And, and the, the women's magazines have all sorts of advice for women on how to be beautiful and attractive. You, you want to look good in whatever you're wearing this summer, so here's how, you, here's how you shave off 10 pounds. Here's how you get rid of this part of your body there. Or you like, All sorts of stuff, right? So our culture has a lot to say to women, and women feel from a young age. I'm not talking like grown women. I'm talking grown women, but also little girls feel this immense pressure from even a young age to be externally beautiful and attractive. But what if, what if our goal as Christian women, not not our, I can't include myself in that I am not a Christian woman, Uh, what if the goal of Christian women was different than the goal of women in the rest of our culture? What if we sought to be beautiful, what if you, (laughs) again, including myself, what if what if you sought to be beautiful and attractive in a way that looked different than the, than what everybody else is trying to do in our culture? That would be interesting, I think. In Peter's day, there was, as there is in our day, an inordinate focus on external beauty and attraction. It's nothing new. But what if the goal of Christian women was not to get other people to believe that their body was beautiful and attractive, and it wasn't even to convince themselves that their own body was beautiful and attractive, but what if instead women's goal, as Christian women, their goal was to have an inner beauty that attracted other people to Jesus? I think that would change some things in our culture, and that's what Peter seems to be getting at here. So let's go ahead and look at that. The end of verse 1, remember, said, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So he talks about conduct a lot, right? And he's done this already a lot to every group he's talked to. He's talked about your conduct. The way that you live your life ought to point other people to Jesus. And wives, Christian wives, your conduct ought to be pure. Abstain from sin and be holy. And then he says respectful as well, okay? So one of the ways in which unbelieving wives could point their husbands to Jesus is by being respectful. Okay? Uh, that means you, as, as Christian wives, don't treat your husband like a kid. He's not like a dog you're trying to train. People talk, and, and sometimes that's kind of funny, right? Um, but it's not very respectful. So your husband is not some dog that you're trying to train. You need to treat him with respect. You don't complain about him to your lady friends and all of that kind of stuff. So Respectful is one of the words that's used there. And then he gets to verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Do not let your adorning be external. And then he gives some examples, which in that culture would have applied to women. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. Now he's not saying don't pay any attention to how you look on the outside. He doesn't say just go ahead and be a slob. That's not the message that he's giving. He's saying, Don't make most of your focus be on the stuff that's going on on the outside, the braiding of your hair, wearing gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear. Instead, the goal for a Christian woman is modesty, not getting dressed and putting on things in a way that says, how can I make myself attractive to other people that I'm not married to? But instead, the goal is, how can I make Jesus attractive to other people? so I'm not going to wear clothing. The criteria the rest of the world probably uses for clothing would be something like, is this the kind of thing other people are wearing right now? Is it comfortable, and does it make me look good? And if the answer is yes to all those three things, then the world says put it on and wear it out in public, right? If it makes you comfortable, if other people are wearing it and you think it makes you look good, then wear it. But a Christian woman would probably look at clothing a little differently. Because they don't want to wear things that attract other people to them. They want to wear things that don't distract other people from focusing on Jesus. Right? So that's kind of the message that he has here. Don't get all your focus all wrapped up in how you look on the outside. That's a waste of time because it's perishable. And then he says in verse 4 this. Here's what you're supposed to focus on. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I like that verse. Women, that would be a good one to go back to. It says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then he adds the tag, that is precious in God's sight. Right? Maybe, maybe you know women like this. We just would define them. They just have a gentle and quiet spirit, and their focus is not on how they look on the outside, but their focus is on letting God do a work on their hearts on the inside. If you know women like that, find them, get to know them, and follow their example. And then Peter gives them an example in verses 5 and 6. He gives them a model, a model from the Old Testament. The models that we have in our day are not exactly models that we should be modeling our life after really in any way. But he says, I've got a model for you, a model of a woman named Sarah. Now if you remember Sarah's story, Sarah and Abraham were married and they struggled with infertility for years. Struggled with infertility and then in the midst of that, God calls them to leave everything that gave them security and comfort and told them to leave and to go to another place. So you can imagine the stress and the tension in their marriage. Couples that deal with infertility have a lot of stress and tension in their marriage. And and Abraham and Sarah would have had that kind of tension, along with being taken up and moved from everything that was comfortable and familiar to them as they moved to a land banking on God's promise that they won't see for a long time. And they're probably getting to a point where they're wondering if it's ever going to happen. And in the midst of that, Sarah is an example for how to live in a respectful and submissive way, even when times are tough, even when trials come. And so Peter says, take a look at Sarah. Be like her. There's good examples. It's good examples of what this looks like. You don't have to turn anywhere but to the pages of Scripture. And then he does one one thing I want to point out at the end of that. At the end of verse 6, it says do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What does that mean? I was trying to figure that out. Do not fear anything that is frightening. What's he saying to her? As, as I studied it a little bit, here's what I found. Remember, or maybe you don't know, that in that culture, women who made major decisions apart from the authority, sitting under the authority of their husbands, they could be treated harshly, and their husbands would not be punished for it at all. So it would have been totally acceptable for a husband to treat his wife harshly if she made a decision like this woman must have done to to, to have a different religion than her husband did. There was no legal protection really for women, just like there wasn't really much legal protection for slaves in that day. So women, I think, are told here by Peter, listen... That's frightening. I know it's frightening for you, but you've got to keep submitting yourself to Jesus as Lord first. So don't fear. You might be frightened about your husband. You might be frightened about, I me. Mean, maybe even Sarah. In that example of Sarah, I bet she was freaked out to leave home. God talked to Abraham and told him that he's supposed to get up and move to a new place. I bet that freaked Sarah out. It's, it's scary to move, right? Don't fear anything that is frightening, he says. So now, so far, Peter has addressed only those who are called to submit, right? He's addressed not the Roman Empire. He hasn't addressed the Roman government. He said, here's all you Christians living under it, submit. And he he didn't address masters, and he didn't address slave owners, but he addressed the slaves, and he says, submit. He didn't address husbands. He addressed wives and says, submit. But now, he breaks that mold, and he's going to address husbands. And he gets to that in the last verse of this passage. Peter has a word here for husbands as well. And so let's take a look at verse 7. What is the word that God has through Peter for husbands? And this is the one where I say, this is hard, because I know I fall short in this personally. So I'm not telling you, hey, here's what Jeremy does, you ought to do this. I'm telling you, here's what God's word says, and we ought to do this. Verse 7 says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. First of all, just interesting, I think, that Peter is going to address husbands here. Remember, he's breaking the mold. He hasn't addressed the the people in the position of authority at all yet, but now he is stopping to address husbands because I think what can happen as husbands, when they're told they're supposed to be the spiritual leader or the head of the household, they can let that go to their heads. We can let that go to our heads. And we can do that in a totally messed up way that God never intended. And so Peter's going to give a word to, God's got a word for husbands here. And he says this likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? Guys that are married, guys that want to be married, here's the command live with your wives in an understanding way. What, what does that mean? Your translation might say something different. Understanding way is a pretty good translation because the word has something to do with, like, you got to get to know them. Okay? Guys, do you ever feel guys who are married? You ever feel like you just don't get your wife? (laughs) Nobody said amen because their wife would have like done that thing, right? Uh, Right? But but if you're honest, like I just don't get it sometimes, right? Like I'm trying to understand, but I I don't. And now we're called biblically to live with our wives in an understanding way. That's hard. You know what's what's not helpful? What's not helpful is the attitude like, I don't know. She's just so different, I'm never going to get her. What that causes you to do is kind of lean away. But what we're commanded to do here is to kind of lean in and to say, hey, listen, I don't totally get her, but I'm commanded to live with her in an understanding way. That means I'm going to have to figure out how this works. I'm going to figure out how she works. Not totally. I'm not going to totally get it ever, but I'm going to work hard at trying to understand her. Right? And guys, we do this with other stuff. I met with a life group here uh, a few weeks ago. We did like a little fish fry thing, and then we had homemade ice cream afterwards. And Carrie brought this this ice cream, homemade ice cream maker, and it had this John Deere motor. All the dudes were standing around. We wanted to figure out how this thing made ice cream. So we're watching the belts and all this stuff. We're interested in how to make ice cream. And, and we're, we want to know how that works, but for some reason, we can kind of just say like, ah, my wife, I'm never going to get that. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going there. No, she's more important than homemade ice cream. You don't understand how she works? Ask her some questions, right, and listen really well. That's what we need to be doing as guys. We need to be pursuing our wives. It takes intentionality. If you're going to really get to know somebody, then you need to work at it. Right, so you need, to, you need to take her out on dates, you need to go take a night away, you need to ask her questions, ask her things that are scary for you to ask, like, how do you think I'm doing as a husband? Or, or ask her questions like, how are you feeling? Even if you don't know how to respond when she tells you how she's really feeling. Or, or we, need to add, we need to live with them in an understanding way. We need to pursue our wives. Turn off the TV, set down your phone, close the laptop, Look your wife in the eye and have real conversations with her, okay? Um, and, and and now I can preach to you. That was my message to me, and now I can preach to you, right? Uh, but that's what we need to do, guys. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And then it says this, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Some of you here are like, whoa, you just call me weak, right? uh Now, here's here's what we can't, what does he mean when he says women as the weaker vessel? There is no biblical or experiential evidence that women are inferior when it comes to intellect or emotion or spiritual life or anything like that. The only thing it seems that he could be talking about here is physical strength. Even the most hardcore feminist would admit that men are physically stronger than women, and the command here to men is show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I think that's a good reminder because Peter would have been thinking of the fact, and we can think of the fact in our day, that when men are told that they are in a position of authority, they are called to be the head of their house, and you combine that, with physical strength, and you combine that with a sinful nature, that could get ugly really fast. Right? It could, and it has. And some of you have maybe experienced abuse at the hand of a husband. So are men supposed to use their superior strength to demand their way or abuse their authority? By no means. Instead, they are to use it to show honor to the woman need to figure out culturally appropriate ways to do this that means maybe that men take on the more physically demanding work in the home men protect women I'm trying to teach my son this already he's 5 he needs to, he needs to learn this we say over and over again in our house that what do we do with girls we love and protect them that's what we do right we never we never say harsh words to them or about them we never harm them physically in any way we need to know this do little things like we open up doors, right? Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And then this reminder that would have rocked the worlds of the people that read it, I think, he he reminds them of this truth. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. When stuff in that culture got passed down, if somebody was an heir, it always got passed down through the man. And he's saying to Christian men here, Listen, your, your wife, if she's a believer as well, she's an heir with you. That inheritance that Peter talked about back in chapter 1, it's just as much hers as it is yours. Right? And so, so he's highlighting the fact that eternally speaking, spiritually speaking, not one is over the other in any way, but she is an heir with you. You are not more valuable than she because of your role of authority. So don't you dare for a second think that your role of authority as a man makes you more valuable than her. Don't you dare think that for a second. Remember that you are joint heirs. That's his message there. And then he says this. Look at the last line. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The command to husbands is to live with their wives in an understanding way, to show them honor, to remember that they are heirs together with them. And then he says, do all this so that your prayers may not be hindered. What he's saying there is that God, who has the power to answer your prayers in whatever way that he desires to answer them, he has the power to not answer your prayers in the way that you want. And it has something to do with how it is that men are treating women. God seems to be very serious about men loving their wives in these ways and honoring women generally. When I hear about abuse, when I hear about men abusing women or children, it makes me mad. And you know what? I think it makes God even more mad than it makes me. I hate it. I hate hate that. And God hates it even more. So he's saying, I'm, I'm willing to not even, I'm not, not even going to answer your prayers if that's the kind of guy that you're going to be. It's how serious God is about it. Husbands, God puts you in a position of authority not so that you could have things your way. He did it so that you could lovingly lead and serve your wife in an understanding way and show her honor. The Bible has no support for the feminist agenda that says there is no distinction between male and female in roles, and one cannot be called to submit to another. The Bible clearly calls wives to submit to their husbands, but the Bible also does not support in any way the selfish man's agenda that demands submission for his own benefit. What well, Peter writes here would have been received as radically countercultural in that culture. He's writing mainly here to Christian women for the first six verses, and they're a part of a minority group living in the Roman Empire. And in that culture, in that time in history, these wives would not have heard this as some sort of oppressive backwoods kind of old school. No, they would have heard this as incredibly freeing. They would have felt incredibly empowered and valued by these words because all the rest of the women in that culture were treated horribly by their husbands. Unfairly, not all of them, many of them. Husbands took their their understanding of the role of their authority and abused it in all sorts of ugly ways. But Peter's saying, no, we do things differently. As Christians, as Christians, we do things differently. That's the message that we see over and over again throughout this part of Peter's letter. God is glorified when his people do things differently than the rest of the world. Christians are called to do things differently than they did before they were Christians. We're called to do things differently than everybody else does because in that way we point people to the fact That we're people, we don't see, again, we don't see submission as a bad thing. Christians can't see submission as a bad thing because Christians, what it means to be a Christian is that you've submitted yourself to Jesus as Savior and Lord. We've recognized that it's good for me to submit to somebody. It's good for me to submit to Jesus. I'm not my own king. I'm not in charge. I don't do well at that. When God has called me to be in a position of authority, I want to use that authority to point other people to Him. And when God has called me to be in a position of submission, whether it's under the government, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the marriage, we use that position, and we use that that kind of conduct of life to point other people to Him. It's the message that we see here. And so I'm going to pray. We'll pray that God would equip us to live the kinds of lives amongst unbelievers that would lead them to bring glory to God. And specifically, we can even pray for wives who are living with an unbelieving husband. It's a tough situation. We need to be coming alongside them in prayer. We need to be praying, would you pray for us who are husbands? Again, when we have that combination of our sinful nature and the position that God gives to us, we can use our position of authority in ways that are not helpful. They're just helpful for us. They're selfish. That's our tendency, and we need God's help to live in a way in which we honor women and to live in a way in which we seek to live with our wives in an understanding way. So we need help with that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that if there are things that I said that were maybe a misunderstanding or a misapplication of your word, that you would correct me. That 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 wouldn't be what sticks in our minds and our hearts. But God, I pray that what would stick in our minds and our hearts and start to be reflected in the way that we think and the way that we live is what is true in your word here. We know all of your word is truth. So God, I, I thank you that you've called us to yourself. We do gladly, willingly submit ourselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, I pray for those that are among us this morning who have not yet submitted themselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're still living as though uh, they were in charge, that they're king of their own life, haven't yet acknowledged Jesus as King. God, I pray you might cause them to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's your desire. That's our desire, God. We do pray for wives who have come to faith in Christ, their first love is now Jesus and their greatest earthly love, their husband, is not sharing that same love with them and that's hard. Help us to know how we can best support and encourage women who are in that situation. I pray for their husbands. I pray that, that men who would would hear the gospel, maybe from other men, men that would see their wives living in, in godly ways, the gentle and quiet spirit watching the conduct of their lives that they might reflect the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live to their unbelieving husband God I pray for those husbands that they turn to Jesus and for those of us who are married and our husbands and our Christians God help us it's hard to understand and help us to keep fighting to understand and to live with our wives in an understanding way We need your help with that. Forgive us for all the times that we have abused any authority that you've given us, that we've used our position to get what we want and not to reflect accurately who you are. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. We recognize that we are in need of grace in so many ways. Thank you for giving that to us in Christ. Thank you for setting us free from our bondage to sin and opening us up to a new kind of life that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Thank you for that good news. Help us to live in it and to celebrate it and to be dependent on you each and every day of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.